Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Deplorable Nation. I'm your host, Deplorable Janet, and today I have a brand new guest to the show that I am super stoked um, to talk to because um, he is doing a lot in the medical community to expose and speak up and things that other people are, are not willing to do, have not been willing to do. So I am super excited to have this discussion today. Welcome, Mr. Graham. How are you? Thank you, Janet. Yes, I'm very well. Thank you for the invitation to uh, to chat. I'm super excited about this. So for people who have not run across you before or don't know you, what did you do? Um, so the short version is I qualified as a pharmacist in the UK um, in the late 1980s. Uh, my first part of my career was with a retail pharmacy chain. I went down the management route. Then in 2002, I joined the NHS mm -hmm. and I quite quickly rose to the position of a director of commissioning. So in the NHS <clears throat> in the UK, <clears throat> sorry, let me get clear that. Sure, absolutely. Um, so in, in the UK, we have regional um, health authorities, if you like. So each region is um, has, a, has a team of people who run that region. So my, my job was to be the commissioning director for regions in the UK. So typically, I would be purchasing healthcare services for a quarter of a million people, maybe up to a third of a million people with budgets of up to half a billion UK pounds. This is mm -hmm. 2002, five. Um, so I did that for a few years and then we had a change of government and change of the NHS and I progressed into regional and then national roles. Um, this is sort of 2012, 13. And I then had my first sort of um, brush with the dark side, shall we say. <laughs> I, I um, and I chose to leave. I, I sort of engineered my own redundancy. And uh, somewhat strangely, I decided to go and work as a consultant. And I spent three years working as a consultant in the pharmaceutical industry itself. So I jumped out of the frying pan into the fire, truly. Um, <laughs> that, lasted, that lasted three years. I then went back to the NHS locally um, and spent a further three years as um, the head of... The, the basically the, the the drug budget so if you like i was the licensed drug pusher in my region um i then got headhunted and asked to run a local general practice a doctor's general practice in the community so twenty six thousand patients 25 doctors this was 2019 um, i became a partner in the practice i became invested in the practice uh i then had to manage the so-called pandemic in 2020 and i very quickly started seeing through this and i'm sure we'll come on i can discuss this in more detail mm -hmm. but i started speaking out and speaking the truth as i saw it started getting attacked asked to be quiet um wanted to leave um my family wanted me to stay lots of people in my community wanted me to stay as the person on the inside who could actually try and stop this mm -hmm. you know, craziness that was going on that we were all seeing. Um, 
by the end of 2020, I had the dubious responsibility of opening a COVID vaccine clinic, uh, which I did. And I ran that clinic for most of 2021. But by the summer, autumn of 2021, um, things were becoming very uncomfortable. I was being increasingly sidelined and attacked by my own business partners, the GPs. Mm -hmm. And at the end of October 21, Mm -hmm. I walked away. So Um, what exactly made made you walk away? I tried to, as far as I could see, I tried to change the course of events from the inside. I could see exactly what was happening and mm-hmm. the lies that were being put forward by governments and by all governments around the world, really. Mm-hmm. This was an international conspiracy. Um, I was doing my best to relay the facts and the you know, challenge the narrative that was being put out. Um, and I, I was being silenced for that um, repeatedly. Um, so essentially, my partners had a vote of no confidence in me. And I said, well, don't waste your time. I'm going. Um, and, and that was the end of twenty October 21, as I say, the time I walked away. So I know you guys have a little bit different setup. <laughs> and system there in the UK. I have a really good friend that worked for the NHS that was actually a medic, which a medic there and a medic here are are very different things. (laughs) But I know um, he was running into instances where they were pushing certain pharmaceuticals and stuff to uh treat things or or whatever during that whole time period that that he knew were detrimental and so he would try to bring it up and then the nhs served him with you're gonna go in front of the board yeah and so um twice he he wound up in front of the board before he finally left Mm. and i know there was a huge push to especially here and and I'm sure everywhere, but silence anyone that spoke up or spoke out or didn't go along with their, their given talking points or their given narrative from, you know, the medias or, or the quote science community. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, at, at the, at the beginning of the so-called plot, well, let's call it a pandemic because it was, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Right. Um, I mean, the, the context here is that I, I had been the archetypal system guy. You know, I'd been trained as what we call in the UK a gold commander. So when the 100-year pandemic strikes, I was one of the senior people who would be in the command bunker along with the government officials and military and, you know, you know um, local uh, elected councillors, that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. so when... When I was seeing on the TV in February, or January, February um, 2020, the, the events in New York and in Italy, Northern Italy and Lombardy, my program, if you like, my NHS programming kicked in. And I genuinely at that time believed that this was it. And mm-hmm. I was going to be facing the one in a hundred year pandemic on the front line. 
So I went into work on a Monday morning and briefed my staff. Um, I had 150 staff. I made a lot of them cry. I, I said, we're probably going to lose about 500 of our patients in the first wave, you know, 500 out of 26,000. I didn't say this, but I anticipated we might lose three or four doctors mm-hmm. in the first wave. So I, I genuinely saw this as the pandemic. And I planned for, you know, the event, you know, what I thought was to come. But very quickly, probably within about three or four weeks, um, so around the time we went down into the first lockdown in the UK, the end of March, I, I'd already realized that what was happening wasn't what we were expecting. So I started digging much deeper into the data, asking questions, and over the next few months came up with absolutely conclusive proof that we weren't in the middle of a respiratory pandemic. Mm-hmm. It was very, very clear that you know the nor- the you know the normal number of people were dying um unless they got anywhere near a hospital and went into a ventilated bed and were given remdesivir and this sort of thing but the people in my community the elderly in my community that were test well they weren't testing positive in those because we didn't have a test at the beginning but the, the right. ones who were assumed to have caught covid um and were expected to die they didn't die they didn't try this deadly infection to their around the nursing homes people in their 80s and 90s who went into hospital came out a week later alive um so i started auditing the data in the practice and it's some months later it transpired um i'd caught i got enough data to show that the average age of death in my practice for people who had tested positive within 28 days was actually five years longer than average. So, you know, I I put a whole series of data packs together for my GPs and my doctors in my practice that showed absolutely conclusively at a local level and a national level, we'd never been in a respiratory pandemic. Mm -hmm. The respiratory deaths were lower than average. Other deaths were higher. There There were deaths of people who'd been neglected Mm-hmm. Um, because our health system was partially shut down. Right. So, and the, the data, subsequent data has proved, and this is government data in the UK has proved that there was a, a spike in deaths from cancer. So these weren't, these weren't COVID deaths. These, these were deaths from cancer. There was a spike at that time in March 2020. There was a, a concurrent spike in cardiovascular deaths in mental health deaths, um, and but there was a, a reduction in the respiratory deaths, and this was all very clear, you know, to me. And and I tried and tried to stop the second lockdown happened as, as we went into sort of September, twenty twenty. I feared that we were going to go into the the winter, and we would be locked down, and. Um, that's when things started getting really difficult for me because I was desperately trying to stop the silliness continuing into mm-hmm. the second winter, if you like, which, um, and that's when it started getting quite ugly in my practice. I'd got um, individual GPs one-to-one would agree with me. And I, I knew they could see what I could see and they could tell me that, but in a group, they stuck together and they would not speak out um, they would not 
um, break the omerta, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, they would stick with their medical colleagues and they would allow me to be attacked, um, which I found incredibly difficult to deal with. So, um, you know, that carried on for the next 12 months before I ultimately said, well, I can't change this now. I, I tried and tried to change it from the inside. Um, I thought I could. I genuinely believed that the truth and the science would win the day. Mm-hmm. But I ultimately, I didn't really understand the system, you know, the, the complexity and the strength of the system that I was trying to fight. I think I now, from the outside, have a much better grasp of that and understand why I couldn't do anything about it. <clears throat> you wrote a really good article. Um, because that's one of the things that that I get asked all the time is why don't more people stand up? And so you wrote an article, why do good clinicians remain loyal to the system? Yeah. I would like to talk about that because mm. coming coming solely, you know, from from me or anybody else that bowed out of the bowed out of the medical system, you know, for me, like you take an oath to protect your patient and to do no harm to your patient. And it's so hard for people to understand why a doctor or nurses or anybody else in the medical system is so blinded to facts and to the counterthetical things that they're doing to their patients. So let's discuss Let's discuss your article and why why do you think there's such a like cognitive dissonance? Yeah. So if, so if we start with the medics, the doctors, so I think um, I mean med- medical school selects very intelligent people mm-hmm. who can follow what they're told to do. Mm-hmm. So I think through medical school, they learn very quickly that if you challenge the doctrine, that you are attacked. So I think, you know, medical students will tell you that they've, you know, the ones that have tried to ask questions and, and um, let's say challenge the, the approach being taken in medical training, they will very quickly be slapped down and humiliated and made to toe the line. So that happens quite early on in med school. Um, I think something else that happens very early on in med school is that all of the forms of medicine, be it um, homeopathy or chiropractic, um, naturopathy, you know, herbal medicine, they're, they're all very quickly identified as um, you know bogus or secondary. Woo woo. <laughs> You know, and it really is very um, patronising to hear doctors talk about other forms of medicine. Um, but but they're, they're taught this very early on. And they're mm-hmm. taught that they are the superior ones. They are learning the true science. And, I mean, we can come back to the Flexner report, you know, 1910, right. 1913, if you like, because that's, mm-hmm. you know, when it... So, some aspect of, of when it went wrong. I think it went wrong a long time before then, actually, but that, that kind of set it in stone, didn't it? I know that's uh, definitely an issue here because yeah. all of our medical teaching facilities or whatnot are very much 
pharma based. Yes, absolutely. And and there's no. I know at the time um, there was one hour of class on dietary management. That yeah. was it. Yeah. And that, you know, yeah. but then you have like tons of of pharmacy classes and you know all of these things to push all of that. You know, not yeah. just pharma, but you know, chemo stuff and, and radiation and all of those things. And it's like built into the system of indoctrination Absolutely. in so, our schools. So if, if anybody hasn't come across the Flexion Report, it was a report to the American Medical Association in 1910, 1913. Mm -hmm. And it paved the way for the elimination of all non-allopathic right. uh, forms of training of doctors. So before then, mm -hmm. The American Medical Association and the government um, uh, paid for medical training for herbalists, homeopaths, naturopaths, mm -hmm. chiropractic, etc. And after that date, those grants dried up, and the only way that a university or a medical school could get funding was to was to teach allopathy. Mm -hmm. And now, allopathy uh, basically is diagnose a disease give it a give it a name give it a code gotta have that label gotta have that label mm -hmm. uh make sure it's in the notes um and then prescribe a drug a pharmaceutical drug now um the uh john d rockefeller was one of the funders of the flexion report and john d right. rockefeller owned or was the main shareholder in standard oil at the time one of the richest people on the planet Mm -hmm. And most pharmaceuticals are made from oil, right? Or, or the sludge at the bottom. Petroleum base. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it was a way of um, finding a market for, you know, the petroleum products that they maybe couldn't sell otherwise. So let's sell them mm -hmm. at a very high price and call them pharmaceuticals. Right. It was all. It's also. I mean, it's an extremely clever business model because um, essentially there's there's no money in healthy people. And there's no money in dead people. Right. So, so what you want is the maximum number of slightly ill people. So you want to you want to ensure people are brought into the allopathic system as patients, that they are diagnosed, that prescribed drugs, and the drugs will not kill them, but they, you know, they're not going to cure them either. So you end up with people who are on drugs for half of their life or more, and possibly mm -hmm. 10 or 15 or more drugs for half of their life. Right. Incredibly successful business model. So the doctors are trained in allopathy. Then when they when they graduate, they they've got more further training. I mean, it's it's hardly begun, has it, the medical training once they once they leave med school. They they continue learning and climbing the ladder, be it in hospital or wherever they're practicing. Mm -hmm. And again, they quickly learn that the successful doctors are the ones that do the you know do what's expected of them and say the do what they're told they follow the protocols they've, <clears> they've <throat> seen some of their colleagues hold up before the the performance committee um you know and maybe struck off um mm -hmm. there's plenty of famous doctors in all around the world who've stood up for the truth and have lost their jobs or right. been been thrown in prison or worse mm -hmm. um so the doctors learn to toe the line, and then they learn that the successful careers are founded on prescribing more and more drugs and diagnosing more and more disease or doing more and more operations. 
And then, of course, the family arrives and the big car and the big house and, you know, the holidays. And before long, they need the big salary to pay for their lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And I think those doctors who do come to see what they're doing in terms of harming patients in the long run, because that's what they are doing. I think some of them, if they try to stop they find that they can't you know for monetary reasons but i think a, another big reason that um clinicians remain loyal to this and i'm talking about doctors here mm-hmm. is that if you've been prescribing drugs and diagnosing diseases for 20 years to suddenly say i think i was wrong and i need to apologize to all of my patients that i've harmed in the last 20 years that mm-hmm. is a huge huge step for a clinician to take. I mean, there are doctors in, and I've heard several American doctors um, who've, you know, come out and said this, you know, right. um, you know, and I, there's plenty of doctors out there who are heroes of mine. I mean, before 2020, I was following some, you know, people like uh, William Davis and Sean Baker and doctors um, like that, who'd effectively stood up and said, I was wrong. And mm-hmm. I'm sorry, and I'm now going to pursue true medicine and follow the truth. Um, so I think for doctors, those are some of the reasons why they they stay loyal to the system, because it's it's the, the alternative is um, oblivion for them, well, you know, professionally and monetarily. And also, too, uh, and I know from working with all different kinds of doctors over the years, because I I worked at a teaching facility, a teaching hospital. And so we had literally every kind of doctor imaginable. And some of them were so narcissistic Mm. um, and so ego driven that I think it would be hard for a lot of them to overcome their ego to say that they were wrong in the first Mm. place. Yeah. Because it's like a destruction of of their personal belief system. Because some of them do act very, you know, godlike in their in their mannerisms. And I know I had multiple run-ins with doctors that would be like, "You don't know anything because you're just a nurse." Yeah. And I wrote a. Um, an audio drama for a friend's show of mine. And I was going through like some of the things that I had to deal with on a regular basis. And we had this doctor student that came in, he came from a whole line of doctors, thought he was superb. And we were going to remove assist. And so the doctor's like, go in, get the room set up, you know, prep him on what the procedure is, you know, tell him where to stand the whole nine yards. And I'm like, I've got this. And so I'm telling this guy and I'm saying, you do not want to stand directly over that. You're going to want to stand off to the side. And he's like, he's like, you don't know what you're talking about. You're just a nurse. And so the doctor tells him to make the incision and he does. And it burst and went right in his mouth and he went right out in the hallway and vomited. And he was like, you need to clean that up. And I said, no, I'll tell you where the spill kit is. Since you didn't want to listen, you can take care of that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I've, 
throughout my life, John, I've, I've always tried to believe that that people act in, for, with the best intentions, and I've right. You know, so I, you know, my my initial stance on a lot of things is surely people can't be that narcissistic or evil. yeah, they are. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm much more of a realist now, and I do, you know, I do understand that. I mean, perhaps the the medical profession does attract a lot of that type of people in the first mm-hmm. place. I think it does. Um, then I think one of the other reasons that people can't leave the system, I think you, you alluded to it, is the whole system is pretty much funded by drug money. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the research that's well almost all the research that's done is funded by the drug companies. Right. The research posts, um, the, the grants for the people doing the research all comes from drug companies. Mm-hmm. The getting paid to write articles, getting paid to go on lecture tours, getting paid to be um, to be printed in a journal, all paid for by drug companies. I was going to say, and a lot of the journals and and publishing places are also funded by pharma money yeah so the editors of the the journals know where their that their funding comes from Mm -hmm. um so it is a very incestuous system so right they're not going to do research to show that their drugs don't work they're Mm -hmm. going to only do the research and publish the research that shows that their drugs do work and, and very uh, selective pieces of that research. Correct. Mm-hmm. So I, I've, I mean, one of my main jobs uh, for 20 years in the NHS was to chair the committees that that scrutinise the the evidence, the published evidence for a new drug. So mm-hmm. I would I would chair the, if you like, the new drug committees mm-hmm. in in our regions, and we I would along with doctors and other pharmacists, you know, go through the data and the published information about a new drug. And we decide whether it was safe and effective in our area and whether we're going to add it to the formulary or whether we were not going to add it to the formulary. So but I, I was very practiced at doing that for about 20 years. So I'm, I'm very well aware of the, you know, we call it smoke and mirrors, mm-hmm. um, you know, damn lies and statistics. So um, drug companies are extremely good at uh, organizing a trial in such a way that it would confuse right. uh, everybody mm-hmm. to believe that their drug actually works when actually when you delve into the detail you can find that it actually doesn't work mm-hmm. but, at, but at high level it would appear to work and I'm, I'm sure you're well aware the the um you know, the high level uh, summaries of clinical trials that are written quite often don't adequately represent the data that's in the rest of the trial. Right. So the, the abstracts that are written, um, you know, are stretching the truth is probably the kind of thing. I was going to say loosely based on, loosely based on the, the data. Yeah. evidence. Um, <laughs> and, and I think we both know that your average prescribing doctor won't even read the abstract no they won't, get, they won't get that far they probably never get as far as knowing the paper is even published mm-hmm. they, they've just been told oh there's a new drug on the formulary and the guy you know your colleague down the corridor is already using it and he thinks it's great um and the patient's already asking it because probably in, in the usa it's they already saw it on tv yeah <laughs> yeah so we, we don't have patient advertising in in the UK. Oh, you're very, very lucky. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't stop the patients coming in asking for the drugs. Um, right. It's all on the internet now, of course, isn't it? So 
So I think that, that, that you know, we, we've, you know, I think we both know that the pharmaceutical industry is completely embedded at all levels, all the way through the healthcare system. I was going to say in our government. <laughs> and the government yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Definitely in our government. We, I had, I did a show not too long ago about the revolving door that our mm. government has uh, between the FDA and yeah. or the CDC and drug companies. Yeah. And it was astounding. It was like 78% yeah. of our government approval officials uh, being in either one of those three letter organizations um, end up going to big pharma as a director or something like that, or they take somebody from pharma yeah. and put them in to the approval process here in our government. Yeah. And it's exactly the same in the UK. And I mm -hmm. think they're very similar around the world. So right. um, you know, that revolving door is real. And it's also very real inside the healthcare system itself, inside the NHS. Mm -hmm. You find that the, the people who are prepared to do their master's bidding um they they get all the best jobs and if mm -hmm. they mess up somebody cleans up after them and they they miraculously appear in in a you know get a promotion and appear in another part of the country right um but people like me who are annoying and keep asking questions <laughs> we, we we get hauled in you know I, I i was hauled in you know um into my um chief executive's office and told to desist you know when mm -hmm. i worked said you are the hospital doesn't like what you're doing. You need to stop. Mm -hmm. You know, and I was saying, well, I'm here to save patients' lives and 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 promote healthcare, and uh, I'm doing the right thing. And he said, yes, we know you are, but the hospital's really cross with you because you're, they're going to lose patients and income. Right. I was going to say they're going to lose if it's like here the government funding that comes in, and that's why here there's such a big you know, the hospitals have to go along to get along because they get so much federal grant money yeah. or giant grants from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation mm -hmm. um, or money tied to the WHO or yeah. our officials at, at research hospitals here are tied to, uh, you know, the, it's a swap between uh the who employees and and the research hospital employees and they like move them back and forth and yeah. so facilities here that's why people couldn't understand why are all these hospitals going along and i'm like they have to mm -hmm. to keep their funding yeah because they get literally millions of dollars a year from the government yeah absolutely it's. I mean, I, I spent twenty years. Um, I mean, I'm at, at heart. I'm. I'm a sort of public health community mm -hmm. clinician. Right. So you know, if you t if you pick any disease, any chronic disease you like. Um, I mean, most of them are lifestyle. Well, probably all of them are lifestyle. I was going to say because, uh, yeah, I don't believe in in viruses and bacteria. No. no well, I'm completely with you on that. I mean, mm -hmm. I did. You know, I was trained to believe in them, but having mm -hmm. looked at the evidence, mm -hmm. I, I'm—I mean, I—I've I, completely come the other way. I, I believe mm -hmm. that the human body is capable of healing itself from anything, right. given given the right conditions, given the right. right nutrition, the absence of stress and toxins. The human body is a remarkable 
um, has a remarkable ability to heal from anything. Mm -hmm. And that truth has been hidden from us. And we are told, or patients are told, that they have a disease or they've caught an illness from somewhere and that their future depends on pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. So, but even long before I, I gained this new understanding, I, even at the very simplest level, it's not hard to see that the way the healthcare system works is, um, it basically is a huge funnel, funneling right. people into the hospital. Right. And if you put a little bit of energy and effort into the community in prevention or education, you know, you can you can halve. I mean, I, I actually did this in this area where I live now. It took me three years to get a project agreed, and it was in the area of respiratory. Mm -hmm. And I, I worked with a um, t um, the lead respiratory consultant in the hospital and, and the lead GP in the community, who were both like-minded with me at the time. And our project went live, and in one in one year, in twelve months, we halved the number of respiratory patients admitted to the hospital. These mm -hmm. are emergency admissions. We also halved the number of planned attendances in the outpatients department. Right. So in, in twelve months, we halved the hospital activity for respiratory, and it had taken me nearly twenty years to get that project agreed overall and, and implemented i'd been i started trying to do it in 2002 um and i at the same time i was trying to do a very similar project in say type 2 diabetes mm -hmm. which again is reversible in, right. in, almost, in almost all cases very easily and i was actually in my own time running education sessions for diabetic patients in the community and we were we were under we were reversing diabetes to the point where people were coming off their medications and coming off their insulin and you know in six to eight weeks it's not hard to do but if you try and do this inside the healthcare system you'll find yourself attacked oh i Attack got yeah. reprimanded multiple times and written up because you know a patient would come in and they have you know like a chronic pain syndrome or something and so i was suggesting like massage or sometimes I would even massage the patient if I had a few extra minutes or whatever, um, chiropractic, things like that. Yeah. And it was like reprimanded for trying to be beneficial to the patient or talk to the patient about diet or, you know, other holistic things that they could try. And it's like, you know, you're harming the patients. And I'm like, am I though? Well, you're not following the guidelines, are you? So therefore, mm -hmm. you're, you're a risk to the system. Mm -hmm. So let let me ask you a question because I don't know if it's if you have the same built-in monetary incentive system that we do here. Um, but since uh, Obama was president and he pushed all the clinicians to go electronic. Um, and so all their prescribing for pharmaceuticals went electronic. Uh -huh. Our doctors would get incentives and bonuses based on the number of drugs they prescribed, um, the number of classifications that they prescribed. It was like a whole tier system yeah. or they would... Uh, I always love it when they come in to bring lunch and it's like a diabetes yeah. rep and 
for diabetes drugs and they would literally bring stuff that was full of sugar and just yep. junk. Yeah. And then they would be like, Hey, by the way, doctor, um, I bought you a whole table at the ducks unlimited banquet, which was literally like thousands of dollars worth of stuff. Mm -hmm. Do they have that same kind of thing over there? Um, very similar. So, um, pharmaceutical reps aren't allowed to visit general practices anymore in the UK. They they did, and they used to take doctors out for lunch. They used to fly them to conferences, say, uh -huh, in all the time. Yeah, um, you know, take them to the you know. Do you want to go for a round of golf at the you know the, mm -hmm. the fantastic golf club? So that used to happen an awful lot. That was stopped about fifteen years ago. Maybe a little bit more than that now. But what continues is, I mean, um, the information can still be supplied to general practices. And it's, you know, as you know, it's very persuasive and it's, you know, it's biased information. But but the, within the actual monetary system inside the NHS itself. So in primary care, in general practice, where um, in, the, in the community, we have, in England anyway, we have a system called the Quality Outcomes Framework, um, QOF, and that, in, that pays doctors to firstly diagnose a disease and then secondly to treat that disease to target or in line with guidelines. So yes, it, it's essentially the same incentive system. So basically, the more patients that are identified with diseases and the mm -hmm the higher the proportion of those patients that are treated with the pharmaceuticals that are recommended for those diseases, the more money the GP practice will make. Mm -hmm. And then in hospital, um, again, the, if it, you know, the hospital, it's, you know, it's, it's, if you think of Walmart, you know, if, if all the customers stopped going to Walmart, the, the Walmart would close mm -hmm. and the hospital is no different. So, at every level inside the hospital, whether it's administrators or doctors, certainly the finance team in the hospital, they their primary mission is to make sure they get more and more and more business. Mm -hmm. um, so that means more and more and more patients who are sicker. They need to um, upcode them. So in, 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 in the UK, if you know if. If a little old lady gets admitted with, let's say, you know, she's breathless and she's got an exacerbation of a, of a chronic respiratory condition, COPD, um, if the hospital can say, well, she lives on her own, therefore she's vulnerable, we can get an extra £2,000. Right. And if we can admit her for three days, we'll get £2,000 more than if we admitted her for two days. So we're mm -hmm. not going to discharge her on the second day. We're going to hang on to it. For three days you know mm -hmm. because that makes more money and you know so there is a massive incentive in the system in both the community and in the hospitals to continue to medicalize and and you know prescribe drugs to patients mm -hmm. that's um, why i said the the labeling system and then <clears throat> um i tried to talk to people before about the upcoding that happens especially when like here they're under the emergency preparedness act yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And so you have all this taxpayer money that's going to fund any diagnosis relating to the pandemic. Yeah. Um, any death that you can label to the pandemic. And that's why, 
you know, a lot of people were questioning, well, you know, my, my family member died in a car accident. Mm -hmm. It wasn't from COVID. And they're like, oh, no, we swabbed them. And they were definitely positive for COVID. They yeah. have to sneak those in there yeah. to yeah. upcode to get that pandemic money. Correct. Flowing um, through the hospital. And they have to label the patients as, you know, chronic COPD or uh, diabetes or whatever, because they have to keep you in that cycle of unwellness. So you're a continual circle patient in that medical system. Absolutely. And then yeah. they will add additional drugs to you that make you sicker, that change something else in your body. So you're constantly having to go back and see the yeah. doctor every three months for, you know, medication refills or wellness visits or, you know, whatever related to your label that they yeah. gave you. I mean, when I, when I first qualified as a pharmacist in the late 1980s, mm -hmm. it was it was very uncommon for me to dispense a prescription to somebody with five or more drugs in it. Mm -hmm. And if I was doing that, it would be to somebody who was typically over 70, maybe mm -hmm. over 80. Right. Um, whereas now, if, if I, uh, and I don't do this anymore now, but the last time I worked in a, in a high street pharmacy about two years ago, I was handing out prescriptions to 30 and 40 year olds with 15 drugs in them. Right. Right. Um, and this is not uncommon now. It's mm -hmm. the, the, the escalation in what we call polypharmacy. Mm -hmm. you know, multiple drugs being prescribed to a patient is absolutely huge. And the, I, I can probably say almost without exception, pharmaceuticals are there to um, diminish symptoms. Mm -hmm. They're not there. They're not there to to. They're certainly not there to cure. Right. Um, and let, let's call it an imbalance, mm -hmm. um, or a, even a, a dis ease. So right. The body, the body is not at ease. So it's not a disease. We have a we have a human being who is in a state of dis ease. Mm -hmm. They are off balance. They are either stressed, they're deficient in something, or they're toxic if, with something. Mm -hmm. What the pharmaceutical and, and their body is cleansing. It's trying to restore right. that balance. So the symptoms that we typically identify as, uh, or a doctor would identify as a, a, a you know, something they've been trained to diagnose as an illness, those symptoms typically are the body trying to restore balance or, or going through a cleanse or throwing mm -hmm. off toxins, etc. And in a lot of cases, the pharmaceuticals, what they do is they suppress the body's attempt to do that cleanse. And so the patient and the doctor will go, oh, the symptoms have gone away. Um, and all the body's done is it's given up that attempt to cleanse and, and it's buried that toxin or that stress, whatever it is, deeper in the body. Right. For, and, and hopefully at some point in the future, the, the body will try to cleanse again but mm -hmm. we know that in the case of the polypharmacy patients they're never going to get that chance right but the patient and the doctor have interpreted the absence of you know all the the the, the symptoms di diminishing as success of treatment i'm but glad you brought that up because the one of the lines of indoctrination for parents right is if your kid has a fever 
mm. automatically give them Tylenol. Ty yeah. Don't give them Tylenol. Mm. Uh, give them ibuprofen, you know, whatever. And even crying is a cleansing mechanism for our body because we have a homeostasis. We have that balance. And anytime that is askew in any way, shape or form, whether it's through pH or something else, your body will find a way yes. to, to try to bring that balance back. Absolutely. But because like for decades, it's been, oh, no, parents treat your kids. They have a fever. Mm -hmm. Give them this over the counter drug. Oh, that's not enough. Go and get a prescription. Go to the doctor because they're sick. Our yes. body has amazing ways at retaining that balance. Correct. So I'm and, I'm um, I'm hundred percent in that camp now, Janet. The, the you know I was trained in diseases and pharmaceuticals, and, I, and I'm <laughs> I'm so far in the other direction now. Right. Um. So I, I'm I'm currently working on a number of projects, but um. Do you know, something I, I, on parasites. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, like you had mentioned, you know, that that drugs are designed not to treat, but to help symptoms. Right. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing they have always done with vaccinations. Mm -hmm. Well, um, this because of this vaccination, all of all of these, you know, people that had measles, like it all disappeared. No. It's just because measles disappeared on its own. That going. happens historically throughout, you know, the the course of of a quote disease, which is we know is not what yeah. it really is. But yeah. that always happens, and then they'll develop a, a new vaccine for something else. Oh, everybody's going to need to take this uh, for respiratory, so we're going to have to give all this. Uh, RSV vaccinations yeah. to the babies now so they don't get RSV. Absolutely. And the whole childhood vaccination program, you know, in, in the USA and the UK, I mean, I, I, I was born in the 60s. You know, I had some vaccinations, but compared mm -hmm. to the children who are born Nothing today, like they do now. No. Agreed. I, same. I, so the number, the number of vaccinations is... is I think it's about eight, eight or nine times as many as it was in the sixties, mm -hmm. and the type of products that are being used are very now, different. Very mm -hmm. different. They're not, they're not inactivated. Um, mm -hmm. you know, let's, let's call it a dead virus. Not that I think that really exists, but right. that that kind of product. Um, but that we're now into these lipid nanoparticle mm -hmm. genetic vaccines. And I think the, the whole pharmaceutical industry is pivoting towards these. They're calling them platforms, aren't they? So all vaccines are, as far as I can see, are being planned to be pivoted onto these new platforms that came in with the COVID vaccines. Mm -hmm. the, the thought of, you know, every child or most children, you know, in the Western world being you know, injected with lipid nanoparticles mm -hmm. multiple times in, in their first months and years of life. It absolutely, mm -hmm. but it's sickening, isn't it? Um, but I, I'm, I'm, I, I do have hope. I do, I do believe that 
more and more people who have fallen under the spell of pharma and healthcare because what I repeatedly tell people is healthcare isn't about health right and and I think it stopped being about health probably in the probably in the renaissance period but you know mm-hmm. a number of things went wrong in the in the uh the way medicine was um organized and tra- and doctors were trained uh, culminating really with the flexion report in 1910 but um mm-hmm. It's certainly not about health, um, but I think more and more people are now realizing that's the case. Mm-hmm. So the, the sort of the patients who've put their you know their doctor on a pedestal and they they worship the white coat. I think you know that those generations are being replaced by unfortunately a lot of people who've experienced harm in in their family. They've seen harm. They've seen death right. in the last three years, and I'm talking to more and more people who who fell for the spell mm-hmm. and are now regretting it. They've identified what happened, what went wrong with them, their health or their family's health, and they're saying never again. Well, but, you know, here it's a it's a thing because people will post on, you know, TikTok or Instagram or whatever social media that they have, like their journey, what, what symptoms they're having, what procedures they had to have done, status post-vaccination, And then our government is having our social media companies takes those down Mm -hmm. as misinformation. Mm -hmm. Um, They have been caught multiple times meddling and changing data that's reportable into our VAERS system. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, and it's like the, the hiding of like the Pfizer documents for, you know, let's 55 yeah. years because they're hoping everyone will be dead mm-hmm. yeah. before anything gets exposed. But little by little, things are dripping out They're Absolutely. They're learning about the lipid nanoparticles and, and, you know, the spike proteins targeting the ACE cells and all of those things. Uh-huh. But they're still doing it. And they're still pushing that that we change all vaccinations to that delivery system why why so this didn't make sense to me as as a pharmacist i was trained you know as i'm sure you are janet as you know you you report you know um instances of harm you know Mm -hmm. new new drugs and and there's the VAERS system in in Mm -hmm. the usa we've got similar systems in the uk and around europe around the world but Typically in the past, you know, reports of, say, 20 deaths would get a product pulled. Very Absolutely. Quickly, very yeah. quickly. And even wait, and then they rebrand it and put it back on the market under another yeah. name. Yeah. <laughs> They've done um, that a lot. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But so in the early stages of the COVID, um, or con- I call it COVID, and it's not a mm-hmm. vaccine. Let's call it the COVID injection rollout. Um there were obviously an awful lot of cases of harm and death. Right. And and at that time, I could not understand why the regulatory safety systems in the US and in the UK and around the world weren't being triggered. Mm-hmm. And they, they were like just looking the other way, weren't they? Just right, not, ignoring not, it. Ignoring it. Um, and I've I've come to I've you know in the last six months I've I've seen the 
mean, there was the, is it the Brooke Jackson case that was in the, in the US? Is it the Jackson case where some of the Pfizer documents were put in? So Pfizer was, you know, taken to court, uh, you know, and their defense in court was that they, they were contracted to the American military, the Department of Defense, and they were not contracted to produce uh, clinical trials. You know, to understate, you, you familiar with this information? Right, yeah. Yeah. So I, I've seen a lot of those papers so over the last few, you know, several months, and it's the only explanation that I can, you know, I can see make sense now is that the, the, the healthcare regulatory system that we all thought we were working with for these COVID injections was not the system that governments were using to roll out these COVID injections. They were, mm -hmm. it was a military operation. Mm -hmm. It was outside the healthcare system and it's, it's part of a military operation around the world. So um, here's an interesting thing. Since if you go through the medical system here, um, the drug manufacturers have liability or have have no liability you can't sue them nothing yeah if it goes through the department of defense instead and goes outside of that and requires no clinical trials i don't know how that still provides them a liability shield well i think that in in the court case that the, the Jackson case that I referred to, I think the judge found in Pfizer's favor, didn't didn't they? That the, you know, they, they said, well, we're not contracted to do safety studies. We're contracted to produce, um, I think they were called the military mm -hmm. military countermeasures or military prototypes was the language in the contract. <clears throat> and the judge found in their favor and said, well, yeah, um, you you you're not. You know, you're not liable for causing harm because your contract was was to produce prototypes. Mm -hmm. um, now, how we are still using prototypes three plus years into a you know a pandemic, mm -hmm. you know, is you know obviously makes no sense whatsoever, unless what we're witnessing has gotten well. It hasn't got anything to do with health. Let's be very clear. But the people who think it is still related to health and saving lives. I don't see how they can cling on to that that belief. You know, it is a right. it's a religious belief that, that that's not borne out by a the, the the sort of simplest study of the data and the facts. It's cultism. It's yes, it's a cult. Yeah, mm -hmm. and that it is so hard to um, like talk to people, convince people, even like you were talking about. You know, with your fellow doctors that you were working with and showing them the data and and all of the things that you had collected and you're like look it's like black and white it's right here literally all of it is right here and you can talk until you're blue in the face but if somebody is so absolutely indoctrinated into the cultism of science uh -huh. it doesn't matter what you say at Absolutely. all it doesn't matter what you show them they have no no reasoning now for me because we were talking pre-show and i told you that i ran our vaccines for children program and so 
you know, we were a reporting agency for the state. And so anytime they would roll out a new vaccination, you know, we would get it and then have to start giving it because it was state, it was state funded. And so, you know, our state would have to do this. Um, and then it's kind of like, and I always give this analogy, it's like the chicken pox vaccination. That's, that's the one that was a big deal that started a lot of my journey into what the hell is going on. Um, because they were like, oh, one will do and it will prevent chicken pox from ever happening. Uh -huh. And so the schools picked it up and they're like, okay, we're going to put it on the thing where kids have to get this before they enter school. And so then we're seeing that kids we had given this to were coming in with chicken pox. Yep. And so we're like, hey, wait a minute, like this doesn't make any sense. And so then the government's like, oh, well, we probably need to do two. And that'll that'll prevent it. It'll <clears throat> it'll definitely prevent it. And so it got so bad that we actually had a form to fill out anytime a patient came in where we were organizing things into tiers guesstimating like how many spots that they had right. and we would have to fax this form literally every week to the state and then we had so many that it got to be daily that we would have to send and that was my first like hmm, something's not going right, right. Mm. it took when they developed the hpv vaccine and then the schools picked that up too in our state it took my daughter getting one and getting vaccine injured for me to be like, I need mm -hmm. to do some research. Something's not right. And this happened right after that vaccination. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, my Lord. And I'm stopped reading the studies and I'm reading the package insert. And I'm like, why are we giving these things to kids? And that's when I discovered... <clears throat> for people who haven't heard me say this before, on the cdc.gov website, you can type in vaccine excipient summary. It will come up with a little link that you click for the pink book. Um, and it will show you the excipient, which is extra ingredients in every vaccination that is available on the federal schedule. In the United States, the only thing that's not on there is the COVID vaccines. <coughs> Excuse me. But that's where I was finding... <coughs> oh, cat hair. Sorry. <laughs> um, heavy metals. Yeah. Beetle cells. Um, antibiotics. Detergent. All kinds of stuff. Mm. Why? I mean, it's the, the the only explanation I can come up with. I mean, I, I do lots of public speaking now in in the UK and 
I do a Q&A at the end and people ask me, Why, what are they doing? And and I the, the only explanation I can give really is that we are being slowly poisoned. Mm-hmm. They're, they're adding poisons from, you know, it's in our food, it's in our water, it's in the air. Mm-hmm. You know, right. it, it's in most of the products you buy and they're in your house, it's in your furniture. Um, and it's they're in your pharmaceuticals, absolutely. And we are being slowly poisoned and it's back to this business model you know that there is no money in healthy people mm-hmm. and there is no money in dead people although there probably is money in dead people if there you is if it's tied to the convent yeah you know the life insurance premium you know the you know i think um it's, it's a it's another rabbit hole that i've gone down is the, the, the you know the, the the money that's underneath the vatican and our life insurance policy mm-hmm. is all there so there probably mm-hmm. is money. there's money in killing us as well but before right. they do that they want us to be ill for a long time in order mm-hmm. to consume pharmaceuticals and other products that, that we think are going to restore our health so i think it's all part of that it's just a slow poisoning and I'm sure somewhere there's a, there's a, a very big database, and they they know exactly who's had what, and you know, hundred percent. Yeah. So yeah. I think they're. I mean, I, I've heard people talk about this. I've not seen it, but that you know that that there are, you know, let's call them hedge funds or you know insurance games going on, betting on mm-hmm. who will live longer. You know, and there's probably. Mm-hmm. You know, as we saw with the COVID injections, different batches were killing people at different rates, and there's, right. there's probably bets being placed on that as well. Wouldn't surprise me at all. If we're in a real life squid game. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, that's that's true about them having like a big database of what's going on with us because the push. For every provider, every clinic, every everything to go electronic. And then they have the national coding system that labels you with something, right? Tells them what your treatment or procedure or whatever is. Um, and then the who gets that. Yeah, absolutely. They, they have that information. That is... Be, that's how they monitor the worldwide uh, health. Um, and so every time you see a provider and that's coded and that's sent not only to your insurance company, but it's remitted to the who they have all that. Plus think about all of the wide swath DNA collection we've been doing. Yeah. Um that all happen to be owned by like the same family. Uh, And so we're collecting DNA from multiple, you know, families, nationalities, the whole nine yards. And so those also get funneled into that human genome product project thing they have. And so they literally have everyone's DNA on the face of the planet. Cause it doesn't matter if you turned in your DNA if somebody else related to you did, they have yours as well. Mm. And then they can see any mutations or changes or different coding in your DNA that somebody else doesn't have. And then if they're going running stuff through the DOD now, 
they can definitely target weapon. Yes, by that absolutely. And I, um, I mean, back in 2012, when I first chose to leave the NHS, one of the one of the things that caused me to want to leave was that I, I, I was basically working just below government level, um, and the legislation in the UK on how the healthcare system is run was being rewritten. Mm-hmm. And I was one of the civil servants, if you like, that was being consulted by ministers on the draft legislation. Mm-hmm. And one of the areas that I was being uh, consulted um, with was was on this, the data. Mm-hmm. And it became very clear to me that our government in the UK was was wholly intent on making our UK health database available to the US. Mm-hmm. This, and this was 11 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and it may well have already been available prior to that. I don't know. but Obama time. <laughs> you know, yeah, absolutely. But, but overtly, you know, the patient record, you know, your patient record in the UK was your record and it didn't go anywhere else unless you right. specifically said you were willing to share your data. Mm-hmm. But it, it became very clear to me that ministers were just looking for a backdoor Right. Um, and they were looking to sell the NHS database, all the patient mm-hmm. data. Um, and it's probably one of the best databases in the world. You know, it's end to end. You know, it's like one insurance system for mm-hmm. the whole of the UK. Um, probably extremely valuable. And they knew it and they were mm-hmm. looking to sell it to the highest bidder. Um, and I just didn't like the taste of it at all. And it's one of the reasons I, I uh, chose to leave at that time. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, going from like, I'm old school because I'm old, uh, but coming from paper charting on everything into, no, now you have to put everything electronic, but don't worry. It's safe. It's safe. It's safe and no what it's not hackable and whatever. And I'm just thinking to myself, bullshit absolutely that is like a line of malarkey because literally anybody can get your information and then it was well if you're an employee you have to sign a paper that says uh you're not going to look up any other person's name in this electronic system uh Mm -hmm. unless they're a patient of yours but there's like one they'll fire you if you do but if they catch it but Mm. who's monitoring the reports and so all of this stuff everybody's absolute everything about them is online and for sale to anybody and that's why we have all the ransomware attacks here they put all of our banking online they put all of our you know uh, social security number and, you know, health records and literally everything about us on a daily basis mm-hmm. is online. Imagine how many bad actors have that information. Yeah. Same thing with the DNA mm-hmm. because it's real interesting about how our government does business and especially the three letter agencies mm-hmm. are very good at at you know and and they've testified about this about planting information on people's computers or or whatever imagine the mess they can make with somebody's dna Mm. and they have it 
They have it and they, they have a nationwide CODIS database for fingerprints and stuff as well. Plus we have all the facial recognition software now. Yeah. And, and once I learned that all of this, when I left the NHS, I, I started speaking out and I, mm -hmm. I had a few people who much better versed on this sort of thing than myself come up to me and said, you need to be careful. Mm -hmm. you know, you're a target. Mm -hmm. And I, I got properly scared um, and I did stop speaking out for a while, but I've, I've since either I'm not a big enough target <laughs> or they're, um, they're busy, you know, they're busy doing other things and they're mm -hmm. not interested uh, or maybe they're just losing. Maybe mm -hmm. they get, maybe, you know, and I, I increasingly thinking that because we're seeing so many things now that are just so visible, Right. It, it's it's primary evidence that they are losing and they are, I, I would call it running for the finish line. They're, mm -hmm. they're getting desperate now and they're trying to, you know, lock in the gains that they think they've got. And, you know, the, the sort of agenda 2050 or agenda 2030. Well, okay. let's do it now. 2030 when our heads are in a floating tank yeah, <laughs> and exactly. our, our consciousness is downloaded into yeah. a blob of slime. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not scared anymore. You know, mm -hmm. I was, but I think if I, if I'm scared, I'll attract that kind of energy. And I'm, I'm now, you know, I'm now holding my energy and my vibration higher, you know, Same. and, I, and I, I wouldn't say I feel invulnerable and they can't get me, but I'm, I'm not concerned about it anymore. I'm, I'm here to do a job. I'm sure right. I came here for this time mm -hmm. and you know, this is what I'm now doing. I'm, I'm speaking the truth, and I'm going to overturn this system. And I'm, I'm part of the, the the human effort that will overturn this system and bring an end to this time. Um, don't know how long it will take. I really hope I'll see it in my lifetime. But right. you know, that's what I'm here to do. Well, that's why, um, like, I like to think of us as what we are no longer, but we were definitely cogs in the machine. You know, we kept the wheels spinning for their their money they're rich mm. to get richer and people to get sicker and i know um you talked about um wanting to have people do like a statement of conscience it was so important for me you know because people were asking me about vaccinations all the time and stuff because we would be very privy to information that wasn't public release mm -hmm. <clears throat> and i did a reel on instagram and i'm like i am very sorry that i was part of that process yeah. um i was so snowed for such a long time because i've literally been in the medical system my entire life you know, and it, it was important for me to like say I was sorry and make amends. Yeah. And I don't do that anymore. I will do literally anything else I can do outside of the quote unquote medical industrial complex mm -hmm. to help somebody heal in any way I can. Yeah. For, and that's my true yeah. calling now. And I don't, <clears throat> I don't have the fear anymore. I don't have any of that stuff because I know God put me here for a purpose and it definitely wasn't to be a nurse in the system. No, but I, I think I, I, 
that's so similar to my my journey. And I th- I look back now on my pharmaceutical career, and I believe that I was chosen to go through that experience right. to see it mm-hmm. and to, and ultimately see through it. Right. So that I can now talk about it in, mm-hmm. in this time. Right. And, you know, for, from a first person authoritative point of view, mm-hmm. I, I mean, it, it's quite clear when I look back at my life and the series of events that have happened that it, this couldn't have happened by chance. Right. <laughs> you know, that, I, that I had this series of experiences and, you know, because I, I generally thought I was being persecuted for many years. You know, it was like, why me? You know, but I always seem to end up in a, you know, being fired or, you know, you know, shouted at or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. why do I deserve this? But I, I now see it as a blessing. Same. You know, and, yep. Yeah. And that because I've had those experiences and because I can talk about them, mm-hmm. um, that's now my purpose is right. to relay, is to reveal the system to those who couldn't see it, but mm-hmm. now are capable of seeing it. Right. And there, there are so many things <clears throat> for me being like, in every aspect of healthcare, whether it was, you know, billing or coding or uh, appeals through the insurance or being a nurse or working in the morgue or whatever it was, every single job that I have had in healthcare has put me where I am today and given me the knowledge and the wisdom yeah. that I need today to be able to change things in a local area. Yeah. And and help way more people than I ever could be in in, in the machine. So. Absolutely. And, and I think those, you know, our local efforts, I think, increasingly will join up. And we're, we're going to change the world. Mm-hmm. That, I that, agree. That's my focus now is that we we're becoming connected. You know, mm-hmm. you know, this discussion right now, we're connecting and, you know, we, we are gaining energy. We're, re, you know, we're, we're attracting more people. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately this will be unstoppable and right. and it will it will overturn you know the, a new system will gradually replace the old system and for a while i was focused on attacking the the system mm-hmm. i now realize i don't need to attack the system actually because it's going to fail anyway i was going to say it is going to crash and burn because there are so many people now that are waking up to uh chiropractic treatment or holistic, you know, or essential oils or herbs. I'm big on herbs and, and essential oils and, and stuff like that. And so that is part of like my path. People always go, how did you get into that? And I'm like, God given, Mm -hmm. because it was like, you are not doing what you're supposed to do. Here's your path. This is what you're going to do. And I think Everybody has such a different specialty and a different set of knowledge, even though a lot of it is the same, but it comes from a different place mm-hmm. that that putting together that new system, it's going to be phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, you know, it, it's that, that, and that's my passion. That's my focus now. I've come to realize that's why I'm here. That's what I'm here to do. Mm-hmm. Is to in any capacity that I can to help bring that new, true, you know, health. Um, mm-hmm. I, I hesitate to call it a system because it's just going to be natural, isn't it? It's right. 
when people experience it, they will just know that it's right. Right. Absolutely. Will feel right. You know, that their, their DNA, it's already in them. It's already in all of us. And all we've mm-hmm. got to do is reawaken it. Right. And, and join together all those disparate pieces that have been scattered for hundreds of years. And that's what we're doing right now is we're, mm-hmm. we're just joining, you know, it's it's back to the future, isn't it? Is that <laughs> All the better. <laughs> so, Mr. Graham, it has been an absolute honor and privilege to meet you and have a discussion with you today. Where can my listeners find you at? Um, well, thank you again for the invitation, Janet. I've really enjoyed our conversation. So my, my work now is um, principally, um, I've, I've, I found uh, in my deepest moment of despair, I found a wonderful bunch of people. And I, I know you've talked to one of them already, John Gusty. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm, I'm known affectionately as the red pill pharmacist. Um, and that's because I've uh, I've joined a band of brothers, if you like, the Red Pill Revolution mm-hmm. team. So John is one of those. Um, Dr. Jeremy Ayres is another key person I'm working with. He's a naturopractic consultant here in the UK. And um, I'm sure I've lived a previous life with Jeremy before. <laughs> um, and... When 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 I first contacted him, because he he mentors people as well as treats people, and I I contacted him on his website said I'd like you to mentor me. So he he got this application from an NHS pharmacist who was running a COVID vaccination centre, <laughs> and, and he, he went, "What the?" <laughs> he, he thought he thought they were coming for him. You know, he he really thought his his free time as as you know was up, and he was going to be behind bars. So he he very much um, well initially he you know for, for about five minutes anyway he, he typed he, back to you and went no thanks <laughs> almost and, and it was his lovely wife it was his lovely wife who persuaded him to say well what have you got to lose you know and within five minutes we realised that we were kindred spirits and so I've I've been working very very closely with uh, Dr Jeremy Ayres for two and a half years now. Um, and we're, we're working on a project called Naturally Better. Nice. So Jeremy Ayres, um, Dr. Jeremy Ayres has got a website and uh, he's also got Naturally Better. John Gusty's part of that as well. Um, so the three of us are forging ahead with what we call the Naturally Better World Health Project. So our, our mission is to support, you know, the, 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 this manifestation if you like of true healthcare across the world mm-hmm. you know, we, we've got it is a worldwide ambition you know we don't know how far we're going to get in our lifetimes but we're going to have a massive go at doing as much as we can while we're here um and a number of other projects connected to that jeremy wants to train you know um naturopractic you know, one one two-year courses on uh naturopractic so i'm currently project managing a number of different pieces um i think increasingly i'm going to come back out onto social media and start doing a bit more work on uh you know talks like this and Mm -hmm. and, um interviews i'm writing a book at the minute which hopefully will will come out next year so so a lot lots of different pieces that are all connected it's all part of the same let's 
let's you know let's help humanity release itself from the healthcare system mm-hmm. and find its true home in in holistic organic human health right i'm i'm a fan (laughs) (laughs) and you three are powerhouses loved my conversation with john i probably could have talked to him until his ears fell off (laughs) (laughs) yeah we we had so much in common and we're actually in the same state so we were like there was a lot to talk about and I am looking forward to my conversation with Jeremy. So super Mm -hmm. excited. I got to talk to all three of you because uh, that just made my wish list for this year. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, we, we run, we run an event naturally better live here in the UK um, in August and with early stages, we're, we're in, we're planning an event, you know, in Tennessee um so um (laughs) nothing ever comes here (laughs) so i hope i hope to be part of that next year and you know it would be lovely to meet you in person and you know that would be fantastic i would definitely be there (laughs) wonderful uh mr graham thank you so much again from the bottom of my heart for spending time with me today it was an honor and a blessing to meet you Um, To my listeners, thank you for tuning in for another episode and for me and for Graham. We'll see you next time and stay well, stay healthy.